following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight, as we look at verses 6 through 10 of of Galatians chapter 6, Paul's going to give us the first of his two final warnings here. And and essentially, we could boil this warning down to this. You you know that that when you plant a seed, you're going to get a harvest that comes from that seed. Now, there's probably not two people in Lancaster County with a worse green thumb than my wife and I. And there's, there's not a plant, herb, or, or, or any growing thing that we can't quickly and efficiently kill without trying. But even we know this principle. If you plant something, theoretically, if you can keep it alive, you're going to get a harvest from that seed. What Paul's going to tell us tonight is that this, this absolute principle of farming, that the seed you sow will determine the harvest you reap, applies not just to the physical seeds that you sow in the ground, But this principle also applies to our lives. It applies to our actions as well. And so if we care about what we will reap in our lives, then we will watch what we sow in our lives. Let's read uh, these verses, Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Paul writes, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. That will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray as we come to God's word. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth, that your word is given from you to your people to guide us, to convict us, to hold before us the truth of salvation. We pray that we would rest in it. Speak to us through your word tonight, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you're thinking back over, over the last few weeks in Galatians, it might seem that as we come to these last few verses that, that Paul's kind of just jumping popcorn style from topic to topic or verse to verse, or at least at a first glance, doesn't seem to be perhaps a lot of continuity to his thought here in Galatians chapter 6. But I think Paul's thoughts here are actually a very logical conclusion to what he's been talking about, and a brief review of the context will, will bear that out. Remember that in chapter 5, Paul has been, since chapter 5, Paul's been, been bearing out this opposition between uh, the flesh and the spirit. That the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are opposing one another. And that as, as, the, as we walk with the spirit, as we live by the spirit, we will not be fulfilling the desires of the flesh. So he's been talking about flesh versus spirit. And in doing so, he also gives us then an example of what the works of the flesh look like 
and what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. And as Paul finishes chapter 5 and moves into chapter 6, he gets very practical and gives us very specific examples, particularly within the community of God's people, of what it will look like to walk by the flesh or to walk by the Spirit. And specifically, walking by the flesh turns out to be a very self-centered and self-focused attitude, which Paul describes at the end of chapter 5 as being conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. These are self-focused attitudes of the flesh as they work out in community. In chapter 6, on the other hand, the working of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is a, is a others-focused attitude where we are building up others, that we're bearing each other's burdens, that we will not be comparing ourselves to others, but we'll be building one another up. This is a self, uh, an others-focused attitude that bears itself out in community. So Paul's talking about flesh versus spirit and how this works out in community. And really, verse 6, which is what we started by reading tonight, picks up in this, in this context. It may seem in verse 6 when Paul says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches it. It might seem like Paul's giving sort of a self-interested principle here. Like, all right, guys, I'm going to teach you the word, so give me the goods, you know, in, in return. Um, but that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's continuing with this principle of community that God's people share with one another what they have been entrusted with. And so those who teach are commanded by Paul to share the good things that God has entrusted them with, the knowledge of the truth that God has both given them and called them to teach. And those who are being taught are called then to share the material things that they've been given with those who are teaching. In fact, um, the word for to share that's used here is, is the verb form of the noun for fellowship. What we're supposed to do is act in community, fellowship together, sharing and giving to each other the things that the Lord has entrusted to us. So that was, that's what Paul's doing, is building up this picture of what it looks like to live in community as we see the fruits of the Spirit bear, bear out in our lives. That leads then to verses 7 through 10 as Paul builds up this picture This picture of living in the unity of God's community, bearing out the fruit of the Spirit, he he comes to a warning for us. A warning in which he comes back to this opposition between flesh and spirit. Paul says we've looked at how the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. We've seen what the works of the flesh and the spirit are. We've seen how they oppose one another and what they look like when they bear themselves out in community. Let's look a little bit more carefully at verses 7 through 10. Uh, together. And Paul starts with his warning here. Paul begins with a very sobering reminder. Paul starts this, this analogy, this farming analogy, with the, the reminder of the absolute farming principle. What you sow is what you will reap. That's the principle that Paul rests on. I recently heard a, a story, and I don't know if you can remember the first time you sort of grasped this concept that if you plant something in the ground, more of it will grow. Uh, I suppose the idea of money growing on trees springs from this early reminder, but but I heard a story recently of a a grandfather who was trying to explain farming to his granddaughter, and he was out planting his tomatoes and his beans and was saying, you know, we're going to plant this little seed in the ground, and then more of this is going to grow up. And the granddaughter's first response was, great, let me run in and get my bag of Fritos. Can we plant those too? And uh, whatever it looks like in the the minds of of youngsters, we, we know this principle. What you plant 
is what you will reap. And Paul's saying this, this absolute principle of farming plays out in our life as well. The decisions that we make, the decisions to either follow the desires of the flesh or the desires of the spirit, are seeds we are sowing that will impact who we will become and will impact the destiny that we will receive. Paul's analogy here suggests, I think, a very natural and organic process or, or a very natural and organic relationship between the actions that we do now, the things that we are doing now, the decisions that we make now, and either the punishment or the reward that we will receive. God has created the world, in fact, to function in a particular way, such that corruption, destruction, and death is the natural result of doing what we want instead of what God wants. And I was thinking about this as I read to my children from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I love the way they describe the fall. When they describe the fall in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Bible says something like this. God knew that when Adam and Eve chose what they wanted instead of what he wanted, all his goodness would unravel before them. It's a great description of, it's not just God arbitrarily sitting up there thinking, oh, I wish they hadn't done that, I'll zap them here. God has created the world in such a way that when we disobey him, when we run from him and walk from him, all of the goodness that he has created unravels. And I think that's part of the, the, the picture that Paul's giving us here. When we sow to the flesh, we will reap naturally this harvest of corruption, disintegration, destruction, and death. Tim Keller describes it this way. I think it's well described. He said, sin against God sets up strains in the fabric of the moral universe. If you sow bad seed, you reap a bad crop. If you give in to your sinful nature, you reap spiritual breakdown and destruction. Paul is saying that sin makes things fall apart. What you sow is what you will reap. Sin always bears destruction. And I think we see this. We see this in relationships. If we sow anger or a bitter word, we know that that leads to a breakdown in relationships. We see this, we see this in, in our own lives. If we sow bitterness and jealousy, it leads to discontentment. It leads to depression. It leads to a self-focused breakdown. We see this, we see this natural disintegration and corruption that happens in our relationships and ourselves. Maybe C.S. Lewis put it best when he said that the, the greatest curse that God could have laid on us is to see us go our own way and says, okay, thy will be done. When we go our own way, God is letting us into this process of sowing sin, sowing to the desires of our flesh, and reaping destruction, corruption, and death. And of course, of course, our sin deserves an active wrath and punishment from God for our rebellion as well. We're not denying that. But God has created us, and he's created this world to bear his image. And as we break that image and rebel against that image, against the way that he made us, we are naturally sowing seeds for a harvest of destruction. I'm going to think of it this way. Just, just as a, a teacup can't deny its nature and decide to try to act like a hammer, without sowing seeds of destruction. Neither can we sow to the desires of our flesh and expect to reap anything but death. That is how God has created us in his world. 
But though that, that, that principle is, seems so clear, what you sow is what you will reap. We know that principle. It seems straightforward. Paul implies that some of us are deceived when it comes to this principle. He starts off this verse with a warning. Do not be deceived. Apparently, some of us think, and of course, as we look at our lives and our actions, we, we see that we do think, or at least we act as if we think, that this principle can be broken. We, we act and we think that we can reap eternal life even though we continue to make choices based on what we want and our desires. We think we can do what we want based on the desires of our flesh. Perhaps we could still reap eternal life. Or even worse, Paul says, others of us are attempting the impossible. We're attempting to mock the living God by saying, I'll follow the ways that I want to go and surely I'll still reap eternal life. And Paul says, no, do not be deceived. God in the way he has created us in his world will not be mocked. This would be like a farmer perhaps discovering that wheat seeds are, are cheaper than corn seeds. And so since they're cheaper, deciding he'll go out and buy the wheat seeds and still expecting to get a corn harvest. And it's ridiculous. And yet, what Paul is saying is don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. But apparently some of us think that we can live that way and buy the cheaper pleasures of our flesh and still hope to reap the harvest of eternal life. Do not be deceived, Paul says. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that is what he will reap. This is the principle that Paul starts with. And of course, if we're going to, if we're going to understand Paul's call to us here, we can't just understand the principle. We have to say, okay, well, what does Paul mean when he talks about sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit? What's included in these descriptions that Paul's given us? And we've certainly talked about, we've seen in chapter 5 what some of the works of the flesh are and some of the fruit of the Spirit is. I think we can go back and summarize here that to sow to the flesh means to act upon the desires of our flesh. To sow to the flesh, and and note that, I think Paul says this well when he says, uh, the one who sows to his own flesh, that that adding to his own flesh adds that self-focused, that selfish I'm going to do it to my desires, to my own fleshly wants. To sow to the flesh means to act on the desires of my flesh. It means to see what what we want, what I want, and to live according to it. To live based upon our desires, though we know the Spirit is calling us to something different. The desires of the flesh, as, as Tim Keller puts it, are those desires that long to keep control of our lives. The desires that that long to keep control of our lives and respond the way we want to respond. I want to read a a bit of a lengthy quote from John Stott. I think John Stott gives such a beautiful description, or perhaps ugly description in this case, of what sowing to the flesh looks like. John Stott defines sowing to the, the flesh this way. He says, to sow to the flesh is to pander our flesh. It's to cuddle it and to stroke it instead of crucifying it. A great description. Cuddling and, and stroking our flesh instead of crucifying it. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure, impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, 
Every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. This is John Stott, and he concludes this way. He says, and, and some of us Christians sow to the flesh every day, and we wonder why we're not reaping a harvest of holiness. Sowing to the flesh, what a powerful statement. Of course, Paul has just told us a couple of verses earlier, back in chapter 5, verse 24, that Christ's call to us is to die with him by crucifying the desires of our flesh. Of course this isn't easy. We know that crucifying the desires of our flesh isn't easy. When we see something we long for so much that it hurts, when having self-control strains our minds and our body and we feel physically and emotionally exhausted by trying to resist the desires in front of us, when being content and thankful seems an utter impossibility giving the lot that we have in front of us. We know this. We know how challenging this is. And it's in the face of those things that we're called to crucify the flesh. And so it's so much easier. We know it's so much easier to coddle our flesh, to cuddle it and stroke it, as John Stott says, to acknowledge its desires as appropriate or impossible to oppose or what anyone would do. And yet day by day, in big ways and small, we're sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Paul says... The one who sows uh, from the flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. What does it look like to sow to the Spirit? If sowing to the flesh is, is cuddling and coddling our desires rather than crucifying them, sowing to the Spirit, on the other hand, as Tim Keller says, is obeying God out of the grateful joy that comes from knowing that we are His children. Obeying God out of the grateful joy that comes from knowing that we are his children. Sowing to the Spirit is really just another phrase, another term that, that reiterates the same thing Paul's been encouraging us to do over the last chapter when he says that we should walk with the Spirit or live by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit. These are all phrases Paul has used and I think speak to the same thing when he calls us to sow to the Spirit. It means running to the Spirit. It means taking advantages of the means of grace that bring us into the presence of the Spirit. Reading God's Word, spending time in prayer, worshiping, being with God's people, these things we've talked about, these are sowing to the Spirit. Phil Riken says it this way. He says, every time we think, say, or do anything for the glory of God, we are sowing to the Spirit. In the end, most of us don't come to an action and say, oh boy, I just, I don't know whether that's, you know, my flesh or the spirit there. Um, we know usually that our selfishness and our, our laziness and our grumbling and our discontentment and our, our seeking pleasure, we know that those are sowing to the flesh. And we know that living self-controlled, thankful lives, sacrificing our desires for the sake of others, giving and focusing on others, we know that doing this for the glory of God is sowing to the Spirit. And yet, we know this, we still end up acting on the desires of the flesh. And this, I think, is why Paul starts this analogy with the command, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Do not think that we can sow, sow, sow to the flesh and still reap according to the Spirit. So here's Paul's call. There's a principle of farming that exists on the field and it exists in our lives. And the principle is 
what you sow is what you will reap. And he gives us this distinction of sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit. But Paul knows that, that just like Paul knows just like the rest of us, that, that sometimes the reality and the difficulty of the moment clouds the hope of what we're, we're waiting for. And so Paul says, in light of this hope of eternal life, that we should not grow weary of doing good. And I remember, I remember the first time my parents told me that I could plant a garden. We had a little plot outside our kitchen window, and my mom planted some stuff, and I remember the first time I was allowed to plant something. And, and I had these grand visions of sort of these huge, juicy watermelons just kind of coming in my back door day after day as I reaped the harvest of, of my watermelons. And so I, I remember planting the watermelon seeds, and, and I waited, I watered impatiently, waited for those, those vines to spring up, and, and after an eternity, the vines sprung up, and, and the little plant grew, and the vines spread, and then flowers came out you know, on the vine, and finally one of them, actually a watermelon, started to grow. And I was very patient through all of that, but once the watermelons started to grow, my patience seemed to, to wane thin and just watch this thing grow at such a slow rate. It seemed like this watermelon would never be an actual watermelon. And I remember finally one day, sometime in July, I'd watched this watermelon day after day after day, and it seemed like it had just stopped growing. So I said, well, must be ripe, and I picked it and went inside. It was the only watermelon on the vine. And uh, my, my five-inch-long, pretty green watermelon was a, a great disappointment to me. Uh, as it turns out, we need to have the patience that I didn't have as a young farmer. We want the harvest right now. We want it now. And when the flesh seems to offer the quicker harvest, we're tempted to take it without asking what the harvest really includes. And so Paul says... Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And there are so many things that can cause us to grow weary of doing good. There are so many things that stand in the way of our walks that cause us to grow weary. First, just the sheer passage of time. Just the sheer passage of time wore down my patience for that watermelon. It was good for a while. But by July, I was done waiting for my watermelon. We can all think of times, I think, when we've been convicted about a particular issue or a, perhaps a particular sin that we're struggling with or maybe we're convicted that we need to be doing something that we haven't been doing. We felt called to help a particular person or, or maybe had a great vision of the glory of God, a great truth that gave us great joy that we wanted to hang on to. And, and although we're inspired for a short time to act passionately on this conviction, that passion dies away. And a month or a week or a day or an hour later, that passage of time has led us to grow weary of, of doing good. It's the New Year's resolution syndrome. And remember, we would, my dad and I had a membership to a, a gym, and we would always stay away for the first three weeks of January because it was packed. But if we waited three weeks, it would be back to its normal crowd and we could make our way through the gym without a problem. And I've just gotten back with about 60 others from a youth retreat this past weekend. The four youth retreats that I've been on, this was probably the most spiritually beneficial and encouraging youth retreat that I've been on. God just challenged myself and our youth leaders and our youth in so many ways. 
my prayer has been over the last week that I and our students and our leaders alike will not fall prey to this natural habit where the sheer passage of time makes us weary of doing good. So first, we may grow weary of doing good just because time is passing. And then, and then secondly, there's our sin. And sometimes our sin is the thing that causes us to grow weary of doing good. We might be convicted or challenged about our sin, but Satan doesn't stop tempting us. Satan doesn't look at a conviction and say, oh, he was convicted, I guess I lost that one. Our temptation continues to face us head on. The desires of our flesh don't fall over dead. They continue to battle against us. And so we grow weary of fighting the same sins over and over and over again. And when we have to repent and we find ourselves falling into the same sin and the same temptation and the same thought and the same grudge and the same bitterness that we have over and over and over, the temptation is for us to give up. The temptation is for us to cease to battle and cease to fight that desire. We grow weary of having to say no to the same sinful temptations, to look at this or spend our time doing that, and we grow impatient or angry with ourselves or others, or perhaps disappointed and discouraged, and and so our sin and our desires weary us from doing good. Or maybe, thirdly, there's just the sheer weight of the needs of ministry. Phil Riken described it this way. He said, There are always neighbors to love, sinners to restore, burdens to bear, ministers support to support, people who need to be blessed. And this is just in our own church. There is always someone who needs more help. But who has the time or the energy to help everyone? And sometimes it's just the sheer weight of the needs. Sometimes it's the sheer weight of the burden of struggling along with someone or some group of people or seeing the needs that weigh us down and we go weary of doing good. Paul knows that you and I will grow weary in the call to faithfulness, the call to sow to the Spirit. And so he says, brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary. But the glorious thing about what Paul does here is he doesn't just say, guys, stop getting tired. He doesn't just say don't grow weary. He actually gives us a reason for not growing weary. He gives us a hope here. He gives us the incentive. He holds out for us the glorious truth we need to keep going. Look at what he says. He says, let us not grow weary. Why? For in due season we will reap. And he's just told us what it is we're going to reap. If we're sowing to the Spirit, what we're going to reap is eternal life. You see, what, you see what that is? What is it we're reaping? We're reaping eternal life with, with the God of the universe. We're reaping an immeasurable treasure. We're reaping this richness of blessing that our Savior has secured for us. We're reaping forgiveness of all our sins. We're reaping the lifting of our burdens. We're, we're reaping the glorious hope of being with God forever when we should have and are have the only natural expectation of hell. We're reaping the covering of all of our guilt and shame. We're reaping the removing of all of our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. We're reaping an inheritance equal to that of the Son of God himself. We're reaping all of the rewards of being sons and daughters of God. We're reaping the rewards of being brothers of Christ and reigning in his kingdom with him. You see what it is we're reaping? You see what this harvest is we're looking for? Paul doesn't just say, stop getting tired. He says, let us not grow weary, for look what we have ahead of us. 
Look at the harvest that's waiting for us. All the treasures of Christ are awaiting us. That's the incentive that Paul says, that, that Paul puts before us as the call to not give up. And as an athletic director and as a youth pastor in a church, which is the, the chosen sport of most of our youth seems to be cross-country, I've, I've been to a lot of cross-country races over the last few years. And uh, been to a few uh, junior high cross-country races, which are always exciting, especially when you get towards the end. And, and there's always the phenomenon toward the end of a junior high cross-country race where you have the, the seventh grader um, who, who maybe is running for the first time and at the end of, of two miles is dragging their feet and maybe walking, looking in their face as if death is about to strike and, and they don't know who it was that talked them into doing this, but they're going to kill them if they're still alive at the end of the race. And so, you know, here they are stumbling toward the finish line. And, and, then, and then you'll see this, this junior high runner turn a corner or, or around a tree, and they can see the, the finish line ahead of them. And that very junior high runner who looked at the, at the you know, door of death itself suddenly breaks out into a dead sprint and finishes the last quarter mile in a matter of seconds. The finish line, the reward, does amazing things for us. I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, here's the reward. I'm showing you what is waiting for you. This is the call to faithfulness to continue. And this is, according to the book of Hebrews, exactly what Christ did. Christ had a cross, a cross of suffering to bear. But what does Hebrews say? It says that he for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, this Christ not only reached the joy that was set before him, but he then reached down to give us that joy as well, the joy of reigning forever in the kingdom of God. And so the call to us is for the joy set before us, for the harvest that we will reap, Brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary in doing good. It is all of the benefits of Christ himself that are calling us to this continual walk to not grow weary, but to do good to all. I think it's worth pausing to to consider this, this harvest, this glorious, immeasurable harvest that stands before us and ask, what are we doing now? What are we doing now? What are we sowing now in order to reap this harvest? And we've talked about sowing to the Spirit. We've talked about doing things to the glory of God. We've talked about joyfully and gratefully obeying God out of the consideration of who we are as His sons. I remember times in high school, and, and you can undoubtedly remember times as well, when I was faced with a choice to do something that I didn't want to do. I could do it, or I could not do it. And usually we weren't talking about, you know, decisions of great sin. Usually we were talking about decisions like, I was homeschooled. Would I wake up at 6.30 in the morning and be disciplined to do that? Or would I sleep in till 8, 8.30, 9? Decisions like, will I have devotions every morning even when I'm waking up early? Or will I not this morning because I'm waking up really early and I do it enough other days? I'm so thankful that in a family context I was encouraged 
to sow seeds of self-control and sow seeds of discipline and diligence and sow seeds of running to the Word of God on a daily basis. Seeds that I've seen in my life bear fruit and yield a harvest. I think it was well said with Tim Keller when he came to this verse and talking about sowing seeds and reaping a harvest. He said, you know, the idea of sowing seeds and reaping a harvest is in these verses a summary of the whole book of Proverbs where Proverbs tells us, gives us example after example of sowing seeds of virtue and sowing seeds of wisdom, the Spirit of God, that will yield harvests of character in our lives. And we could spend all evening on this principle, but the key question for us is this. If the harvest, if the reward that's set before us is so immeasurably great, if Christ is such a glorious King, And the salvation he shed his blood to secure is so incomprehensively great. If it's so rich in its hope, and if it's our only hope, if this is Christ, if this is our reward, why would we pass up any opportunity to sow seeds for this harvest? Why would we pass up any opportunity to sow seeds for the harvest of eternal life and the glorious riches of Christ? Yes, The reward can seem distant. Yes, it seems like we may never reap that harvest. Yes, it may seem like nothing is happening and we don't see the harvest growing. Yes, maybe we won't even see it in our lifetime. Yes, it is hard. Yes, sowing to the flesh is easier. But, but if we set our minds on this harvest that we will reap if we sow to the Spirit, if we set our minds on Christ and his glorious promises, sow to the Spirit and do not grow weary in doing good, we will reap this great and unfathomable reward. That is what Paul is saying. We have a great harvest, so sow to the Spirit and do not grow weary of doing good. As Paul comes to the end in in verse 10, he, he says, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. I think it is beautiful how Paul both emphasizes this, again, the community of God's people, the household of faith, God's people, God's community are are a priority. They call for us to do good to one another. That That is how the community of God's people are built up as we mutually do good to one another. Let me just imagine what God's church would look like if every one of God's children came to church on a weekly basis asking, how can I do good to each of my brothers in the household of faith? And if all of our brothers were asking that question uh, as well. But Paul doesn't limit it to that. He doesn't say only do it to the household of faith. He says, let us do good to everyone. And that's one of the, one of the ways that the early church set themselves apart. One of the things that amazed the watching world as God's church began to grow, that here was a community of people that, yes, they did amazing good to each other, but they didn't limit their good to each other. They were also gracious and generous and good to the world around them. And so Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing good, and as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, before we end tonight, if if you followed carefully, we have here from Paul a careful call to our lives, a careful call to watch what we're sowing. 
If this is what we want to reap, then watch what we are sowing. If this is what we expect to reap, watch what we are sowing. Or, conversely, what are we sowing? If, if we are sowing to the flesh, do not be deceived. We will reap corruption, disintegration, death, and punishment. That is what we will reap. But if we followed this warning, we might, we might be thinking, and maybe even should be thinking in some ways, wait a second. If sowing bad deeds leads to death and sowing good deeds leads to life, you know, is Paul saying that, that what we do determines whether or not we're saved? Is Paul saying that our eternal life depends on sowing enough deeds to the Spirit or, or that our death depends on doing enough bad things to, to, to the flesh? And wasn't, wasn't the whole point of Galatians to argue against this? So how does, how does this call to action fit in with the, with the theme of Galatians that we are justified by faith in Christ and not what we do? I'll just remind us two truths in light of this call to action. First, remember that the whole point of this passage is not about doing enough good deeds to earn an eternal life. It's about sowing to the Spirit. And it is the Spirit who then bears the fruit in our lives that this passage describes. It is the Spirit who gives us both the fruit and the harvest of eternal life. But perhaps more to the point here, remember that God's Word is one of, if not the primary tool of God's Spirit. How does the Spirit bring about the fruit of, the, of, of uh, God's Spirit in our lives? He does so primarily through His Word. His Word, these calls to action, are the tools the Spirit uses to call us to who God wants us to be. God's Word is filled with these calls to action, to calls to effort. Because if the Spirit of God is at work in us, then we should desire the Spirit to point out our sin. We should be eager for the Spirit to point out ways that we need to grow. We should be longing for the Spirit to point out areas that we need to be forgiven and to repent. Receiving specific calls to holiness, faithfulness, and perseverance should be welcome if the Spirit is working in us. Perhaps we could, could say it this way. These calls to repentance, to holiness, to action, to doing good are not at odds with the Spirit working in us by His grace alone. Scripture's call is part of how His Spirit is calling us by His grace alone. And so as we see this call tonight, this warning to us not to be deceived, the things we are sowing now, the decisions we are sowing now, either to coddle our flesh or crucify it, to run from the Spirit or sow to the Spirit. These decisions are part of how our harvest will be shaped. And so Paul's call to us tonight is this. First, look on the seriousness of this warning and look to our lives. Look to the warning of God's Word. If we are sowing to the flesh, be warned, brothers and sisters, of the harvest that we will reap. But run to Christ whose forgiveness is available to all who run to him and whose spirit will still shape in us his image. And secondly, look to Christ. Look to Christ who becomes a greater and greater Savior the more we see of the desires of the flesh that need uprooting in our lives, the more we see these desires of the flesh at work in us, the greater our vision of the Christ who died to cover them. And then we could add, look to Christ the greater we see, the greater we understand the benefits of Christ, the gloriousness of the reward of our Savior, 
the more we will be encouraged and called to sow to the Spirit. So our response to this passage should be, all praise to Jesus, and O Spirit of God, change me, fill me, make this harvest grow in me. God, we know this principle. We know that what we sow is what we will reap. Don't reap a harvest of something different than what we've sowed. We acknowledge and confess that on a daily basis it is so easy for us to sow to our flesh and not consider the harvest we reap from it. We pray that your spirit would be actively working in our lives. We pray that your spirit would be shaping in us the desires of the spirit, desires of obedience and of grateful joy for what Christ has done, desires of the spirit that are motivated and called by this glorious vision the rich hope that we have in Christ. And we pray that this would happen to the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ and through his work on our behalf. Amen.